Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance uh, incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for us. Before we get started, let's bow our heads together for a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful that we can come together to study your word this evening, to reflect upon the Lord Jesus Christ, to sort of put together a lot of the things that we've been studying over the last couple of months. And Father, we pray that uh, God the Holy Spirit will just use that to increase and strengthen our understanding of who the Lord Jesus Christ is and what he has done for us. Father, we pray that we may be able to focus and concentrate this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, one of the things, I got a question in the last week. I actually got a couple of questions that came came to me in the last week. And when Jesus Christ was incarnate, he was eternal God that came into humanity through the virgin conception and birth. And from that point, he was undiminished deity, united with true humanity until the end of eternity. In other words, forever and ever. So he is bodily incarnate. When he was on the cross, it was the God-man, the one person with two natures that was on the cross. And he paid the penalty for our sins as the God-man, as the one person. Some people want to try to divide that. You, you can't divide. The one person is there. He has two natures, but he is the God-man. And when he went to the grave, he was the God-man. It's that one person. Now, we know that his soul and spirit left that body and other things happened. And then at the resurrection, he has a new physical resurrection body. It's not quite the same as the body we have now. It's able to materialize through, dematerialize and go through walls and move at the speed of thought and different things like that. But he has a body, soul, and spirit making him true humanity. Then he ascended, and he's at the right hand of the Father. What's distinctive about it is that the one who is at the right hand of the Father is the God-man. There is a full, true human being sitting at the right hand of the Father and is at the helm of the universe. And see, people just have, to, you know, for whatever reason, they try to somehow change that, but that that's reality. So that's kind of what we're getting at. The other thing that happens is due to not only liberalism, but also various forms of uh, Unitarianism, which is a form of a transitional... Um, sort of a transitional stage going from orthodoxy to liberalism because it's a denial of the Trinity. 
And these are people who diminish the eternity of Christ. And so we saw last week in our history lesson that this was a big issue in the early church. It took them 300 years to figure all of this out. From 100 to 451 with the Council of Chalcedon to clearly come together, unify over a precise explanation of, of the hypostatic union. And in fact, that term hypostatic union, as we saw last time, originated uh, in that context. But once you have liberalism come on the scene in the late 1700s, then liberals today um, have a lot of different problems. So I, I thought I'd give you a little quiz. I used to love things like this when I was both have taught in theology classes and have also uh, as a student, I always enjoyed professors who would take quotes out of a Jehovah's Witness tract or a, from a Unitarian sermon, things like that, that are real communications in the real world that you will run into. You'll have conversations, perhaps, with people who make statements like this, and so they're good drills to teach us to think, uh, to think critically and think through it in terms of what, what we've learned and what the Scripture says. Now, this quote comes from an article, one of the t- two really good articles that I, I've read on Philippians 2, 5 through 11. This one was written by Paul Feinberg. Paul Feinberg's that you need a little, everybody needs to know where you come from in terms of how we as West Houston Bible Church fit within the body of Christ and the tradition. And there's two boys named Paul and John Feinberg, and they both ended up as professors at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in the uh, 70s and, and 80s. And their daddy was Charles Feinberg. Now, anybody here ever hear the name Charles Feinberg? Now, just thinking, I, I figured you did, Bill. Uh, Charles Feinberg was a professor of Hebrew at Dallas Seminary in the 1940s, in case you know anybody who may have gone through Dallas Seminary in the 1940s. But Charles Feinberg came to Christ in his mid-20s, just before he was ordained to be ordained as a rabbi. He had been reading the Hebrew Bible you know, better than you and I probably read English since he was in his early teens. When he matriculated at Dallas Seminary in the late 30s, he read, he knew more about Hebrew than anybody on the faculty at Dallas Seminary. And he was a well-known professor of Hebrew, and later he went to Talbot Seminary in Southern California. And so this article is written by one of his two sons, Paul Feinberg, and he's interacting with the false views on the passage of Philippians 2, 5 to 11, the false views of the passage and the person of Christ. And so what his, one of his basic organizational principles for his article is that there's basically two ways that, uh, quote, theologians have approached this passage. One is from the position of adoptionism. Y'all know what adoptionism is, right? How many times have I taught that over the last ten lessons? So here's a chart. This is that you have eternity past, and there's just God, a solitary deity. And then at some point in 
history, uh, God is going to provide a Savior. And so you have the birth of Christ, of Jesus of Nazareth at some point uh, in the past, and then due to his spiritual maturity and his godliness, then at his baptism, God is going to uh, bestow deity upon him. So he's not eternally God. So, you know, this gets back to that question of how are you defining deity? How are you defining divinity? And so Jesus is uh, sort of elevated to this position of, of, uh, of deity and thus is qualified to become our Savior. That's adoptionism. So the pop quiz question is, is that biblical or is that not biblical? Your eternal security depends on it. No. That's not biblical. Adoptionism was declared a heresy. It was, uh, you know, another form of this, a little different, was Arianism, and we studied that. And so you have one group that take this adoptionistic view, and for them, Jesus is what? Primarily human. And that, so what, what uh, Paul Feinberg did was he took basically the view of one of these men and sort of summarized it, and that's what this statement is. This is a summary of uh, one of these theologians' uh, view, and this is a view that uh, attempts to argue that Philippians uh, 2 is really based on the analogy of the first Adam and second Adam uh, that is used by Paul in other passages. So in other passages like uh, Romans 5, 12 to 21 and 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 22, Jesus talks about the first Adam, the last Adam, the first man, the last man, that kind of language. And so what, what they're doing is they're bringing that to Philippians. It's never mentioned in Philippians. They're bringing that to Philippians and saying that's what this is talking about. And so they're using this uh, particular uh, analogy in order to uh, support an argument uh, for uh, their view of of Jesus. So I'm just going to read it because I know not all of you got this in, in an email and didn't get a chance to look at it. In two six, that's Philippians two six. The phrase "in the form of God" is an allusion to the creation. I had to f- sort of fill in the blanks here so it'd make a little more sense to you. The guy is saying it, it really is an allusion to the creation of Adam as the image of God in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. There, Adam is said to have been created in the image of God. As such, he was not divine because Adam wasn't divine. That's his argument. Christ also was in the image of God. He was truly a man. And that's what he's meaning. He's only a man. That's what he's saying. That comes out in a couple of sentences. Here, so it is argued, the similarity ends. Adam and Eden grasped or sought to seize equality with God. In so doing, he sinned and experienced the judgment of God. Unlike Adam, Christ did not think that equality with God was a thing to be seized or snatched. Instead, Jesus embraced his humanity, affirming his creatureliness. He did this by emptying himself of his, what? Aspirations to be God and accepting a life of obedient service. This obedience ultimately required his death, even death on a cross. Jesus was a man. That's all he was. He died and gave his life as a man intent on serving God and others. 
So now this is really a, a, a fun little exercise because what you see is there's some truth here that is mixed with error. And that is always how Satan, Satan sucks people in. You know, you'll hear certain things. And get, yeah, I believe that. Yeah, I believe that. Yeah. And then the next two or three sentences are the trap. So he starts off by saying that the phrase in the form of God is equivalent to the phrase in the image of God in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And that's completely false. There is nothing similar, even in the Greek uh, Septuagint, the word for image of God is icon, where we get our word icon, is icon, not morphe, the phrase that is used here in uh, in the Greek of Philippians chapter 2. Second, there's nothing in Philippians that relates to the first Adam and second Adam analogy or typology. It just isn't there. They're, they're importing that so that they can lift the passage out of context and sort of universalizing it. But once they do that, then you lose the, you lose your interpretive framework. And that's, that's a typical, uh, technique that's used. Uh, third, we see in here that as the first, as, at, that the first Adam was grasping or trying to become like God. That was the temptation that Satan said to Eve that, that, you know, he said, you won't die. God just doesn't want you to be like him, knowing good from evil. So yes, that's a true statement. Uh, Adam did grasp or he sought to seek equality with God. And by doing that, he did sin and experience the judgment of God. But see, when he gets into the next phrase, when he gets into the next phrase, unlike Adam, Christ did not think this equality with God was a thing to be seized or snatched. Instead, Jesus embraced his humanity, affirming his creatureliness. He did this by emptying self of his aspirations. See, you got to get down to that third sentence to find out what he's really talking about, that Jesus is just man and so he, unlike other humans who may have aspirations to deity, Jesus gave up his aspirations to deity. And that's not what the text says. The text says that Jesus, though, you know, we'll get into, I'll, I'll review the exegesis, although he existed as God, you know, that indicates he was already existing as God prior to uh, entering into uh, human history or taking on humanity. So Jesus didn't have aspirations to deity. He was God, and that's very clear in the text. And he goes on to say he did this by emptying himself of his aspiration to be God and accepting a life of obedient service. This obedience ultimately required his death on the cross. But then he said Jesus was a man, and he finally he defines that, that Jesus was a man. That's all he was. So he, this is a complete denial of the eternality, of the eternal deity of Jesus Christ. But anyway, I hope you were able to pick out at least one or two of these. I know several people read it and said, that's wrong. Okay, why is it wrong? What is wrong? If you're parents, you need to be able to answer those kinds of questions for your kids. Because they're going to hear stuff like this from somebody. Oh, they're going to play with somebody. They're going to say, well, Jesus wasn't God. Well, what are you going to say? Well, just you can't say that's just not true. Jesus is God. 
You need to be able to sit down and go to the Scripture and point to the claims of deity and everything, just like we did in the last in the last ten uh, ten lessons. So what we saw is that there are three basically fundamental questions that the early church had to wrestle with. Number one is who was Jesus before he came? Was he eternal God? Was he uh, created as a spirit being higher than the angels but not eternal at some time before Genesis 1-1? Or what was he? Uh, What was Jesus then when he came? How how is he truly human? How is he undiminished deity? And to understand that, you have to understand the answer to the last one, is that is Jesus came to die on the cross for our sins. So he has to be fully God and fully man. Otherwise, he's not qualified to pay the penalty for all mankind. So these were the major questions that the early church had to wrestle with. What was Jesus before he came? If he was eternal God, then why aren't there two gods or three gods? If he was created, then how can he be God if he's not eternal? Very important question. Jehovah's Witnesses, Unitarians, Unity Church, uh, a lot of liberal Protestant denominations will have pastors who hold to these heretical views. That's what came out of 19th century Protestant liberalism. So the last question is the important one. If he isn't fully God or fully man, how can he be a substitute to pay for all sins? So we went through this, just a quick review. We looked at all the passages from the Old Testament that predicted a Messiah that would be fully God and fully man. We looked through uh, all the passages in the New Testament that teach both his deity and his humanity. Uh, then we... Uh, went to passages uh, related to his offices, pointing out that that has to do with his his humanity as prophet, priest, and king. And then the conclusion is what uh, the Bible teaches on the God-man. And then lastly, last week, I went through how the early church finally came to understand it and to get it right. So when we got into Philippians 2... The beginning of Philippians 2, the first four verses, are a, an exhortation or challenge to unity. That there are four accurate assumptions made in the first verse. If or since there is consolation in Christ, since there is the comfort of love, since there is the fellowship of the Spirit, since there is affection and mercy... On that basis, Paul justifies his command to fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being one accord and one mind. It's that emphasis on unity. Unity not at the expense of doctrine. It's not unity based on having some religious experience, which is what a lot of people have. They just have some religious experience. And uh, so then they think that's okay because somehow God's going to make it all right and it's all going to come together. And then in verse 3, Paul says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. So in contrast to the command to be of the same mind, like-minded and supporting one another, we are to not do things from selfish ambition or from self-absorption or conceit, but in humility of mind, 
Let each one think others are better than himself. So that's the issue. It's a humble mental attitude. How do we know what that looks like? That's where the example of Jesus comes in. Now, if the example of Jesus being humble, that he humbled himself to the point of obedience, the point of death, is that primarily related to his humanity or his deity? Well, if it's related to his deity, then how are we going to be able to fill any of these commands? Because we can't be God. We're not perfect. It has to apply to his volitional choices in his humanity. And that's critical. That Jesus, while he does things from his deity in the first advent, turns the water into wine, you know, he just sort of dematerializes and passes through the crowds of those who are trying to stone him. Um, uh, He does various other things, calling forth Lazarus from the grave. He does that from his deity to prove that he's God. But he doesn't rely upon his omnipotence or his omniscience or his omnipresence to solve the personal challenges to his human spiritual life. He's the second Adam. He has to go through various categories of testing and temptation to demonstrate that he passes all the tests. So unlike Adam, who did not humble himself and was disobedient, Jesus humbled himself by being obedient even to the point of the cross, which indicates that that it, he humbled himself by being obedient all the way to the extreme of his death on the cross. And so that is the ultimate illustration. Jesus did it out of his humanity. Otherwise, we can just sit here and say, well, he did that out of his deity, so this can't apply to me because I can't do that. He did it out of his humanity. By what? By relying upon the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Spirit of God and the Word of God is sufficient for us. Now, that, mean, that doesn't mean we can always get it right and that we're always going to pass those tests because we still have that nasty sin nature. So that's the command, and it connects because here the point is we are to have this uh, humble mindset, this mental attitude of humility, and that connects the first four verses to verses uh, six, uh, 6 through 11. And in verse 8, we read, And by or or when he was found in appearance as a man, that talks about his physical humanity, he humbled himself, and it really, as we'll see, that, that should be translated as sort of by becoming, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So this is the illustration, it's the picture, it's the example for us of humility. And that's the basis for the command, let this mindset be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. It's a mindset of submission to the authority of God. That's ultimately what it is. It's not a, a, the, the issue. Is how, how does Jesus be, how is he obedient? He humbled himself by being obedient. So the issue is obedience to God. 
that's humility. Humility is not somehow thinking less of ourselves or going around being in, you know, acting like we're really insecure. We're not really special. That's just sort of a pseudo humility. Humility is submission to authority, correct submission to authority. And that's why, you know, Moses is the most meek man or humble man in the Old Testament because he submitted to the authority of God when the whole nation is in rebellion against God. Yet he stayed firmly obedient to God. That's humility. So that's the picture, to have that kind of mindset. I'm going to be obedient to God no matter what the cost. So let this mental attitude be among yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus. And that's a te- uh, there's a textual problem there. Uh, one one group of Greek texts has it as a present active imperative, which would indicate that maybe emphasize our volition. The majority text has it as a present passive, and I think that is because and I think that's correct. It's a passive because it indicates that this mental attitude is is produced by the Holy Spirit. We make the choice to walk by the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is the one who matures us, developing in the, this mental attitude. It goes; these terms go back to Philippians two, three, and four. We see lo, the idea of lowliness of mind. The phrase to consider or think. That same word is used again. I think it's in verse eight. And so Jesus is going to not be focused on his interests as the eternal son of God, but he's going to give, be willing to restrict that for the sake of saving humanity. So we learn who Jesus was before he came. When we look at this in the King James, it's not that clear, the new King James, who being in the form of God. Now you get the sense from the English that that's a present tense. And then the next, uh, clause says he did not consider it robbery the did is what past tense but we don't know the grammar for and the rules for participles and their mod- how, how they modify verbs in in greek and that's really what the important thing is so what does it mean to be uh the phrase being in the form of god what is being indicate past or present it's past what does form mean? It has to do with the, the essence of something. And what is robbery? See, it says he didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God. That's a bad translation, so we'll be working with mine as we go along. So this word being is a presence. See, it, for some reason in this program, it doesn't underline well. It uh, puts a white line there. So it's a present participle. The main verb is consider, and it is an aorist middle, which is a past tense. Now, the, when you have a present tense modifying a past tense, then the present tense is a condition that takes place at the same time as the action of the verb. What that means is when he was thinking about this, so, so to speak, he was already in the form of God. That's a clear statement that he is God before the incarnation. He is full deity. So 
it would be translated like this. It's a concessive participle who, although existing in the form or the essence of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, the other thing to recognize is there's a synonymous parallelism between the phrase the form of God and equality with God. So the form of God means he's equal with God. So it's a very clear statement of his eternal equality with God. He is full, undiminished deity. And so we translated, who though existing in the form of God did not consider or think equality with God was a thing to be grasped. And that's what that word means is to grab something or to hold something. It's related to the word for the rapture, which means to be snatched or grasped uh, away. So the idea here that we saw was that who, referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, although eternally existing with identical essence to God, did not think. So it, it goes to his thinking, his mental attitude, his humility. He did not think that equality with God was something to be grasped after. So you have two ideas that have come across in the translations. The one it has the focus on to grasp, seize, or snatch something. So that can be applied to a violent seizure of property or robbery, and that's where the King James took it. He said he didn't think it was robbery. That's not a good. That's not an adequate approach for a lot of reasons I won't go into. Um, but it has the other idea of, gra- of, of grasping something or trying to gain something. So it's best translated, as a number of translations do. Um, he did not think. I think it equality with God was something to be grasped after. So Jesus, see, Adam is man, but he has aspirations to being God. Jesus is fully God, but he sees a higher goal, a higher objective to save mankind. So to accomplish that, he's willing to limit or restrict his divine prerogatives in order to accomplish the task for the joy that was set before him hebrews 12:2 he endured the cross he endured the incarnation we could add there so our conclusion in translating philippians 2:6 was that although eternally existing with identical essence to god he did not think equality with god was a claim to be selfishly grasped after So that tells us that Jesus, before the incarnation, was fully God. The next question, what was Jesus when he came? Verse 7 says, but made himself of no reputation. That's how New King James translates it. Taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man. So form of a bondservant is the same word that's used for existing in the form of God. So it has to do with the essence of something. He's going to be a servant. And that connects right back to uh, those those commands in verse 3 and verse 4 uh, in the introduction that we're not to look out for our own interests but for the interests of others. We're not... Um, 
we are, are, are not to be seeking our own, but seeking what's best for others. So this is, tra- I translated this, but he willingly limited himself. So that's that word kenosis, which is the verb is here in the middle. That is kanao, the noun is kenosis. He willingly, it's translated empty, but he is, he is restricting his divine prerogatives. And he does this himself. It's, it's uh, reflexive. God the Father doesn't make him do it. He willingly does this for himself. He's going, not going to use his divine prerogatives to handle the problems that come to his humanity. That's the uh, significance of that. And so he willingly limited himself by receiving the form of a servant. So he adds humanity to himself, and that's part of this restriction. And he comes in the likeness of men. So he receives, that's uh, by receiving the form of a servant. So in this slide, I've translated that, but willingly limited himself by receiving the form of a servant or slave and coming in the likeness of men. And that form indicates the essential nature of something. So he's fully God, he's in the morphe of God, and he's the morphe of man. Verse 7 goes on to say that he came into existence. So this is one one of the meanings of, of the Greek word genomai is it can be translated just he is, but it has the idea of becoming something you weren't before, okay? So uh, John the Baptist came, uh, but he came into existence, whereas in the first verse of John 1, 1, that it says in the beginning was the word, it's a different word for for existence, it's uh, a me, it's being. And then, but John the Baptist, Ginomai, he came into existence. That emphasizes he's finite, but the Logos was infinite. And he's in the likeness of, uh, of men. He's true humanity. So what kind of man was he? What did he do? Well, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient, obedient even to, uh, obedient to the point of death, even the death of a Christ, uh, uh, even the death of the cross. So he's found in appearance as a man. So people saw him, they witnessed him. They, as John says in First uh, John one one, they saw him, they touched him, they uh, ate with him. All of the different things that he says there to indicate they were witnesses that he is not just appearing as a man, but he was physically, he was in a physical human body. And uh, he, so he was found in appearance, a schema, that is the state of something, the appearance of a man, and he humbled himself, that goes back to, the, that word is used back in, um, uh, back in, in, uh, Verse 3, lowliness of mind, humility. He humbled himself. And then you have that verb, genomai, again, by becoming. And it's a participle, which indicates means he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. That's how we show humility. 
is not by saying, well, you know, I'm just not really that great, or I'm just not. That self-effacing is not humility. Humility is saying, yes, I'll do what I'm supposed to do, you know, to the authority, whatever the authority is, and doing it willingly and not grudgingly. So Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. So he lives his spiritual life in obedience to God. So that's what he did. But what's the whole point of this? The whole point of this has to do with the significance, the significance of of exaltation. Humans are all about self-exhortation. But what we see here is that we are to humble ourselves and then God will exalt us. Philippians 2.9 says, Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Now, this is all new territory. I haven't gotten into this yet. This is the exaltation, this verses 9 through 11. So what we see here is, and somehow I typed in tongues, it should be as a result of his genuine humility in his humanity. So that phrase, as uh, the, the therefore, should be as a result. This is a, a Greek uh, word for reaching a conclusion based on the prior statements. So as a result of his genuine humility in his humanity, he humbled himself submitted himself to the authority of God and obeyed the plan of God the Father, even to the point of death. So this obedience was in his humanity. It's not in his deity, which is always obedient to God. His deity could not have been the basis for this. The issue is to test his humanity like Adam's humanity. Is he going to obey God? Is he going to submit to God or disobey God as Adam did? That's that's where the test is. So it begins with a conclusion that because he was obedient and submitted himself to God, God exalts him. So this exaltation is a distinctive word. Now, one question that comes up here is, is this exaltation, is this something gracious, or is this a reward? I think we have to remember that the, the adage is that grace is a gift, but rewards are earned. Okay, this is a, a reward in his humanity. And, and as I read through various things here, I think there was a failure to grab on the part of, of many, they understand the basics of this exaltation that, and will quote the verses that talk about the fact that Christ is exalted to the right hand of the Father, but they miss the point. Nobody, nobody brought this out, that the obedience is from his humanity. And so this is a reward for his obedience because now as a man he is seated because as God, he doesn't sit, okay? He's omnipresent. His humanity is seated. His resurrection body is seated at the right hand of the Father on the Father's throne. He's not on the throne. He is at the right hand 
of the Father. And so God exalts him. And then we'll look at the next part of that in just, just a minute. But this exaltation takes place in stages. By that I mean it begins with what? The exaltation of Christ begins with the resurrection. That's the starting point. Romans 1, 3, and 4. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared, this is God the Father declares to the universe that this is the Son of God. But he's declaring it not with words, but because he brings him forth from the dead. So it's an action that declares the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. He's declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. That's the starting point. But what happens next? Well, you have the uh, ascension. But this exaltation, I want to say a couple of things about it first. This exaltation manifests a basic principle that is uttered several times in Scripture. In Luke 14, 11, Jesus said, For whoever, ex- whoever exalts himself will be humbled. That's not going to be a pleasant thing. And he who humbles himself... And how do you humble yourself? By being obedient to God. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Who exalts him? God's the one who will exalt us. In James 4.10, and this is echoed also in um, in uh, 1 Peter 5, uh, 3 and following, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. So God is the one who will exalt us. The word that's translated lift up is the same word for exaltation. Hebrews 2.9 tells us that Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, so in his humanity, he's a little lower than the angels. God, angels, and then mankind. Uh, he was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, and then he is crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. So he is exalted by God the Father. In Hebrews 1.3, to go back to the opening of Hebrews, talking about the Lord Jesus Christ being the brightness or the effulgence or the radiance of, of God's glory, and this thing, glory stands for all of his attributes, all of his essence. And then the character, the express image, the imprint of deity. He's the express image of his, that is God the Father's person. And upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. A human body sits. This emphasizes his humanity. Now, I've gone through several times studies on the ascension and session of Christ. 
I did it when I taught this the opening in Hebrews uh, 1.3. I did it in the beginning of uh, Ephesians chapter 4, uh, talking about Christ descended and then ascended and all of that. So we uh, discussed that. Uh, Hebrews 12.2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher, because he said it is finished the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That is the exaltation. It's the exaltation of his humanity because his obedience came from his humanity. He humbled himself by being obedient to God. That's not out of his deity. Romans 8.34 said, Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Another one of these intercession verses, Jesus is a high priest. He's the one who intercedes for us. We don't pray to Jesus. We pray to the Father. Jesus intercedes for us. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us. Jesus is the high priest. You don't pray to the high priest. You pray to God. Hebrews 1.13 said, But to which of the angels has he, that is God the Father, ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? That's from Psalm 110.1. Now we have to start putting some of these passages together, and you'll rem- you should remember all of this. Uh, Colossians 3.1 says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of the Father. So Christ is at the right hand of the Father. He's waiting for something. Why is he sitting there? Well, he's advocating for us. He's interceding for us at the Father's right hand, but he's waiting for something. And that's what is described in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7 introduces this term that was Jesus' favorite phrase to refer to himself, the Son of Man. And so this is describing what is happening in the far future. It hasn't happened yet. This is what happens and is described in Revelation chapter 4 and 5 when they are looking for someone qualified to take the scroll in chapter 5 from the hand of the one who sits on the throne, which you trace that phrase through Revelation, it's always God the Father. So Daniel sees this vision. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven and comes to the Ancient of Days. That's God the Father. That's pictured in Revelation chapter 5 as the Lion of Judah coming to take the scroll from the hand of the one who sits on the throne. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him, Jesus, near before him, the Ancient of Days. Then to him, to Jesus, the Lamb of God, the of the tribe of Judah, then to him, the Lion of Judah and the Lamb of God, rather. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. That happens. The tribulation is going to take place when the Lamb of God, the Lion of Judah, takes the scroll and it has seven seals. When he starts opening those seals, those are the seven seal judgments covered in Revelation chapters 6 and 7. And then the seventh seal 
reveals seven trumpet judgments, and that's in Revelation 8, 9, and 10, and then 10 and 11, 12 and 13 kind of fill in the gaps of what's happened elsewhere, and then you get into the bold judgments. That's the seventh trumpet judgment reveals seven bold judgments. So the beginning of all this is when the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days and he is given the scroll, which is the title deed to planet Earth, because he's going to recover the dominion of the Earth that was originally given to, to Adam and Eve in Genesis one twenty six to 28 that God created them in the image and likeness of God in order to rule, to have dominion over the birds of the air and the beasts of the field and the fish of the sea. So uh, he's going to have to take it back from Satan, which he does when he defeats Satan and the armies of the Antichrist and the false prophet in Revelation 19 and he sends the Antichrist and the false prophet directly to the lake of fire. People say, well, how can he do that? They're in a mortal body. Well, don't you think that, that he, that's a summary statement? That he's going to say go, and as soon as he says go, they're going to change from mortal to immortal as they go straight into the lake of fire. He doesn't have to tell us every step along the way because we know how to think through the process. Obviously, when they hit the lake of fire, they're no longer in a mortal body. But some people have to have everything spelled out for them rather than think about the process in the text. So this is, this is what's happening. It's described also in Matthew in the Olivet Discourse. And this is coming to the last part. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. This is when he's coming down, Revelation 19. Uh, then the sign of heaven, uh, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect, that is, tribulation saints, from one end of heaven to the other. And he'll establish his kingdom and reign for a thousand years and he must reign, according to 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-five, until... He has put all enemies under his feet. Now, what's interesting is this passage in Isaiah 45, 23, where God is speaking and he says, I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out from my mouth in righteousness. Now, I don't have an Aramaic text, but I would bet good money that the Aramaic of the word there is Memra. Remember, we studied Memra in John chapter 1. This is an Aramaic concept. And so the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. Who's saying that? God the Father. And then look at what happens in Philippians 2, 9 and 10. As a result, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name which is above every name. So here we have uh, a grace word used, charizomai, which also can mean forgiveness. It has a number of different nuances. 
But this is a name that God is going to give Jesus. Now, what name do you think this is? I think it's pretty evident from the context what the name is. Some people say, well, it's Jesus. Well, he already had that name. Yeshua, his Savior. So what name is going to be evident here? Philippians 2, 10 and 11. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Of those in heaven, that's the angels, the elect angels. And of those on the earth, that's humanity. And of those under the earth, that's the demons and the fallen angels and Satan. Every tongue will confess, admit that Jesus Christ is Lord. They're not saying he's the boss. They're saying he is God. That was a key phrase in the early church was, are you willing to admit that Jesus Christ is God, the deity of Christ? And so this is the, this is the issue. And I think that, that the name that is, that is emphasized here is that he is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's understanding that it means full, undiminished uh, deity as well as humanity. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So that pulls in this phrase that is, a, that is, focused upon God the Father in Isaiah forty five twenty three, that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. So that name is that Jesus Christ is Lord, a full admission of his deity. So that brings us to a conclusion, one of the, my favorite chapters, sections, and passages in the Scripture that emphasizes humility. And Christ is our model in his humanity by being obedient even to the point of death. So next time we're going to come back and we're going to get into this next fun little section that begins with a therefore conclusion. Therefore, as you have always obeyed. See how that connects with the illustration. Christ humbled himself by being obedient. He's telling the Philippian believers that they have always obeyed. They've been obedient. They have exercised humility. And they've done it, Paul says, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. And then this phrase, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And that's a phrase that is... Uh, pregnant with significance, but many people have difficulty with that in verse 13. So we'll come back next next week and start looking, or not next week, because I will get uh, two weeks to study to work my way through this, because I will be in uh, New Jersey, Philadelphia, New York, uh, for three or four days uh, next week. So you can pray for pray for us. For, for next next week as we go through this. So I'll be coming back giving you a good report of what we've seen and learned as we go up there. Father, thank you for this opportunity that we can study through such a significant passage as Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And we pray that you just help us to really think about this and to think about the significance of what it means that just as Jesus humbled himself by being obedient no matter what the cost, that we too are to be obedient. We're to humble ourselves by being obedient to you. And that means we have to know your word and we have to make not knowing your word a priority in our lives and then applying it.
So we pray that you would continue to strengthen our resolve to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that in his name. Amen.